invite you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5 this morning. Galatians chapter 5. We've got two chapters to go in this great letter of Paul on breaking the spell of legalism. And this is the application section. And so I'm going to take a little time and uh, get us into applying God's word to our lives. When you think about all the religions in the world, you realize that there are many. People are worshipers, so people are worshiping something or someone, typically, or themselves. You're talking about religions that are based on figures like Buddha or Confucius or Joseph Smith, Mary Baker Eddy, perhaps even the Pope, or ideologies and government Systems like communism or Marxism or philosophies like New Age mysticism or even postmodern thought that you'll find on most, if not all, secular campuses around our country. Postmodern that boils all different roads that lead to heaven, theoretically, which really are one giant melting pot that's saying trust in yourself to save yourself. But really, if you boil everything down, it comes down to two religions that are in the world. One is the religion of self-achievement, and the other is the gospel of the grace of Christ. There's only two. In the end, you're either clinging to Christ and his finished work on the cross. You either believe that and are holding to that and trusting in Christ who is God, or you are trusting in the religion of human accomplishment. The sad reality is that the religion of human accomplishment trickles into the church, and most professing Christians believe they are trusting in Christ alone, wherein really they are deep down trusting in a little bit of themselves while they're trusting in Christ. Christians often blend the two unwittingly trusting in something or someone else, namely themselves, while professing to have a complete and wholesale trust in Christ alone. This book of the Bible before us is God's word which breaks that spell. Because if you're trusting in 99% of Jesus Christ and 1% of yourself to get you to heaven, you've mixed Two realms, one of Christ and the other of works, and you are forfeiting Christ within that admixture of law-keeping and grace. These are two contrary principles. Think about it. You're either trusting in God's gospel, which is Christ alone, or you are trusting in some other way to heaven. Even if you're naming Christ with one foot in the world of Christ and one foot in the world of works, you are undoing the gospel altogether. The sad parable that I read about a Jewish rabbi who had lived his whole life in law-keeping, believing that he had kept the law perfectly within his own ability and done the best that he could, where at age 79, on his birthday, he found that he was soon going to die and out of discouragement actually willingly violated the law only to send himself into a tailspin of despair. He was trusting in religion instead of Christ 
to save. Well, this is the point of chapter 5. This is the point of what we're looking at. If you look at verses 1 through 3, verse 1 of chapter 5, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Stop there at verse 2. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You could insert any religion that I've talked about thus far into that verse. If you accept postmodernism, if you accept Confucianism, if you accept New Age philosophy, if you accept some kind of Marxist government system to save you, to give you peace uh, towards heaven, then that's no gospel at all. Christ becomes of no advantage. You cannot take advantage of the free grace of Christ if you're trusting in something other than God's perfect gift of the gospel. Christian freedom is radically different than all religions or it's not the free grace of the gospel at all. It's either totally different and totally in, in a world of its own as the saving grace of God, or it's something else. It's either God's way to heaven, or it's not. Now, I dare say that most churches preach a mixed gospel. If you were raised in the church, you probably heard some admixture of grace, and then a mixture of, hey, but you better not do this, or you better do that to stay right with God. Uh, just raise your hand if you heard some variation of a gospel like that growing up. I mean, don't be shy. Come on. Let's be hand-raising for a minute. All right, there we go. We, we can say, well, we had a hand-raising service. There we were. There it was. But I dare say that probably, along with the churches through the centuries, you just didn't hear a very radical message about the grace of Christ, that you don't have to do anything To save you. And if you try to do anything or try to add to the free grace of the gospel, you're actually undoing the freedom of the gospel in your life. Churches are tentative to promote this kind of gospel, to completely free you to trust the grace of the gospel, to be completely freed. Because if you're free to live your Christian life, then somehow this is removing the incentive towards holiness. If you're completely free, then... We have no way to really motivate you to be holy. That's what churches believe. This is why over the century, churches have felt the need to tone down the gospel, its radical claims, to trade gospel freedom for a message that aims to stop people from living any way they want to. However, a mixed gospel completely ignores the Holy Spirit completely ignores the idea, the truth, the reality that the Holy Spirit convinces us that the gospel is true, that the gospel is the only way to be saved. It completely ignores a works-based mixed gospel, ignores the Holy Spirit's work in your life. It's repudiating any chance that the Holy Spirit can convict you of sin. It's the idea of hover parenting where we, and I'm guilty of this, where I'll hover parent and say, hey, don't go here, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. If you do that, this will mess your life, you know, instead of trusting God 
as you parent, but I know we're responsible to do that, but as we parent, we also have to trust God and his spirit to work in our children's lives, right? Well, it's the same way as a child of God. We have to trust that the Holy Spirit will work in our hearts to conform us to the image of Christ from the inside out. Christian life is a contrast to externals, and it highlights the inner discipline of God that is far better than the outer discipline of man-made rules. Warren Wearsby put it this way. He said, no man can become a rebel who depends on God's grace, yields to God's spirit, lives for others, and seeks to glorify God. The legalist is the one who eventually rebels because he is living in bondage, depending on the flesh, living for self, seeking the praise of men and not the glory of God. Here's the question. What is more dangerous to you spiritually? The free grace of Christ, a Christian liberty that's through grace or legalism. What's more dangerous? What will step on your proverbial air hose and what will free it? Legalism, it attempts to do what's impossible to change the old nature and make it obey laws of God, legalism succeeds for a short time and then the flesh begins to rebel. All right, let's take a quiz. Let's see what you've learned so far. I'm going to have you just raise your hand and call out. No, just kidding. All right, so see which profile fits you best or is most describing who you are. One statement or the other. Number one, I admire this person. I so want to submit myself to this person. If I obey these rules, I'll become more spiritual like him or her. Or, I need, capital S, someone other than myself to control my life from within. The someone, this someone is the Holy Spirit. All right, next. I believe I have the strength within myself to obey and improve myself. I do what I am told and I measure up to the standard set before me. All right, next. Through the Spirit's love, I have a desire to live for others and not myself. All right, here's one. This is tricky. I'm making progress. I don't know some of the things. I don't do some of the things I used to do. Other people compliment me on my obedience and discipline. I can see that I am better than others in my fellowship. Don't say that out loud. How wonderful it is to be so spiritual. You know, put the plastic grin Um, this life of liberty is wonderful. I want to live for God's glory, and he is the one making this possible. If only others were like me, God is certainly fortunate that I am his. I want to share this with others. I want other groups to have people like us in it. I really do. It's too bad there are not groups as spiritual as we are. Well, I read those statements in an interlaced fashion back and forth because it's very subtle between the two. Some of them can actually sound righteous when they are condemning and horrible. And it's a very fine line between um, being spiritually driven from the inside or externally motivated from the outside. And the external motivation of legalism, again, is Galatians chapter 3, where Paul calls it a bewitching influence, which should immediately make us think satanic. Externalism, Pharisaism, it's soul-killing. It's being a bad witness to yourself where you say, Christianity doesn't work. I've fallen down again. I need to get up again. And it's a bad witness to the watching world where they say, man, that person 
is externally driven. They think they're better than we are. That person is always depressed, always falling down within his own guilt and pressure. And that sort of external testimony is destructive for people. If you'll indulge me, I want to quote a Princeton theologian from the 1700s uh, when Princeton was uh, really a more godly place. This guy named Archibald Alexander, he nailed my mission for this morning in a few words. He said, there is a defect in our belief in the freeness of divine grace to exercise, listen to this, unshaken confidence in the doctrine of a cost-free pardon is one of the most difficult things in the world. And to preach this doctrine fully without verging towards anti-obedience is not an easy task and is therefore seldom done. But Christians are lean and feeble being deprived of this proper nourishment. It is by faith that the spiritual life is made to grow in the doctrine of free grace. And any mixture, any mixture of human merit is the only uh, any without any mixture of human merit is the only true object of faith. Without any mixture of human merit. That's what we're shooting for here. The free grace of the gospel. Will you and will I give ourselves permission to believe in a cost-free, truly God-given, full grace gospel? Will we give ourselves permission to believe in that gospel this morning? It can be hard to do. But this is my mission. This is our task in Scripture. We're ridding our outer motivations while regrasping inner motivations of the Spirit to live the Christian life. Number one. And how are we going to do this? We're going to look at gains and losses. That's what Paul is doing here. He's always targeting the heart. He's always wanting things to work from the inside out. And so what is lost when we're trusting outward motivations. So let's just assume that we do have this admixture in our hearts, even as believers, where we're trusting grace, but we're also trusting some outward motivations. What do we lose spiritually? What do we lose in life when we're doing this? Number one, we lose our freedom. We lose our freedom. Look at verse one. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stop there. That's a beautiful phrase. Now, we touched upon this last week as our concluding word as I was finishing up a difficult passage from chapter 4. It was a good way to wrap it up. But this phrase is really great because it's cyclical. It's cyclical. It's saying, why were you saved? You were saved to be free. We should say that together. We were saved to be free. Why were you saved? We were saved to be free. Period. You weren't saved to go out of one cell. You're in this cell. Picture it, you know, and you're in the cell of sin and you're bummed out and you're weighed down and and God has awakened you to your guilt of your sin and you feel dirty, you feel exposed, you feel naked before God's holiness. You feel like, I am condemned, I'm going to hell. And then God saves you. You know, the dungeon flames with light and you're set free and you walk out and you walk right into the next cell at the next Um, chamber and you go and you say, you know, okay, now I'm going to put this yoke of legalism on my back and I'm going to put my hand in this this shackle and that shackle and I'm now going to work and earn my holiness for the rest of my life. Now, we weren't saved out of one jail cell to go into another jail cell, saved out of our sin to go into legalism. We were saved to be free. We were saved to fly like with wings of an eagle, to fly as a believer, 
so that we could understand the free grace of the gospel. We were saved out of legalism. We were saved to be free. That's what it says. Christ has set us free. It was for freedom that he set us free. Now, how do we obey this? What, how do we keep this freedom in our lives? That's really the question that we should ask ourselves. How are you going to do it? Paul simply says this, stand firm in your freedom. Here's the command. Recognize that you were freed and then stay there. And then stay there. Now, the rest of the verses are going to explain how to do this, but it's as simple as that. When people preach something of externalism or obligations for you to add to your gospel life, you're to shed that, you're to repudiate that, you're to run from that, you're to say that's not the gospel. You're to discern what is the grace of the gospel and what is something that's additional in your life that people believe you have to keep to stay right with God. You have to discern that when people add anything to your life externally, this is not a good thing. These are bad motivations. And who wouldn't want to stand firm like a bulldog in the gospel? We need to. We need to not yield quarter but guard our gospel freedom with this proactive command. How is this done? Again, it's by measuring what's lost and what's gained in terms of staying free or going back into bondage. You have to look at what you lose. First of all, if you give on freedom, then you're giving up the freedom of the gospel. And verse 2 says you're actually giving up Christ's grace. So Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't put that yoke on. Verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You're giving up the grace of God in your life if you put on the yoke of slavery again. What does that mean? What does that mean for a believer? Are we talking about losing your salvation? The Arminian tradition will say, well, look, here it is. You're a believer, and then now you're You're putting yourself in a place where Christ is of no advantage to you. So did you stop being a believer? No. Well, first of all, there are two categories of people that Paul is addressing in the book of Galatians. You have believers, and then you have people who think that they are believers. And that's how you have to apply verses like these. Uh, For the believer, how is Christ no advantage to you. Well, when you trust in a yoke of slavery and you start to say, if I do this, this, and this, then I will keep myself right with God. When that becomes your mentality, what happens is, is you lose the power of God in your life. You lose the grace of God in your life. We're we're commanded to grow in grace by God's enabling spiritual power that's from the inside out. And when we trust in human achievement to believe we're earning God's favor or keeping ourselves right with God, then we are forfeiting God's power in our lives. Has anybody ever felt that before? Where you feel just sucked dry. You're a believer, but you feel empty inside. You feel unmotivated to read the Bible, unmotivated to pray, unmotivated to witness, unmotivated to do anything. You fall into a state of lethargy spiritually. This is Peter when he denied Christ three times. He was lethargic. He was 
empty. He was off mission. There are people who take themselves out of the sphere of trusting in the power of God. Now, there's a second category. There are people who, through their own blindness, believe that they are Christians, but they are really not. And this is a far worse category. And this is some of the most severe language and warning to people who would be in this category. Paul's referring here to a person who thinks that they are saved, but they are in ultimate spiritual jeopardy because they believe that they became a Christian through trusting in their legalism to save. And the logic is simple. If you trusted in yourself and in your works to save you, then you did not trust in Christ to save you. Christ is of no advantage to you because you never trusted him fully in the first place. And there are a lot of people within the church that could be in this room who are duped in believing that they are fine with God, they are right with God, but really if they were pinned down and you were brutally honest before God, you would say, you know what, I never fully trusted in Christ to save me, I trusted in my own goodness to save me. And Paul is saying you can't have it both ways. What's he talking about here? He's talking about accepting circumcision. Why is that the unpardonable sin here or, you know, some sin that is sending people to hell, accepting circumcision? Wasn't Paul circumcised on the eighth day? I mean, Jesus Christ himself was circumcised. Isn't this a a purifying um, medical thing that happens to mitigate against diseases. This was regularly performed on children as a medical procedure to cleanse the race of the Jews. Wasn't it to set them apart? Yes, it was all of those things. Paul was circumcised. He prescribed to Timothy to be circumcised, to not be a stumbling block to the Jews, Acts 16.1 says. But really the issue comes down to this. And it comes down to this for you in whether you are trusting in works to save It's all about your motivations, your motivations. And for the church, these Galatian believers were faced with a decision that had crept into the church, that had made it all the way down to Jerusalem in the Jerusalem council, where false leaders were saying this, Acts 15, 5. They stood up in the party of the Pharisees and they said, quote, it is necessary to circumcise them, these Gentiles, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Circumcision would be like the front door to going into a life where you were trusting legalism to save you. It's the front door. It's the first thing that you would do to say, I am dedicating my life to the law of God, at least in this circumstance with these motivations. Not Timothy, where he's, you know, deferring and allowing himself because he was, his father was a Greek. He had not been circumcised. So when he was saved, he said, I want to remove any stumbling block, any barrier whatsoever, so I can give the gospel freely. That's an entirely different motivation than these new believers who were right on the edge of uh, truly believing or not. And, and people were saying, no, follow this path instead, this path of the law instead. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. And, and the key word in Acts 15 with this uh, Acts 15, 5 declaration is the word necessary. That's what changes everything. The false leaders were saying, it's necessary for you to do this, for you to be right with God. And as soon as someone lays that necessary word on it as an obligation, then it becomes fighting words. This is the difference between a person choosing religion or a law of grace. Thomas Schreiner said, if they submit to the knife, they will 
find no profit in Christ at the final judgment at that point. You say, well, how do I make this real? Well, let me say it this way. I was mentored by a guy one, one time when I was a new believer, and he said, listen, I know you're a believer. I know you're following Christ. But when the end times come and the Antichrist shows up and people are lining up to either accept a mark of the beast on their right hand or on their forehead, even though you know that you're a believer, don't do that. That's the idea. You say, but I know I'm a believer. But if you take the mark, if you take the mark, according to Revelation 14, 9 through 11, those who take the mark, they're not going to heaven. If you receive the mark on your, your forehead or your hand, uh, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath. That's a pretty strong warning. It's, it's the kind of warning that we say, look, don't trust in your conversion experience as the grounds for your salvation. Trust the gospel of grace alone for salvation, a gospel you'd be willing to go to the stake for, a gospel you would be willing to die for. Don't take the mark in any form or fashion. Don't do it. In the same way, there was a test for new believers or these new professing Christians in Galatia where it was like, look, don't be circumcised because to be circumcised under these conditions means that you're trusting in the law instead of grace to be saved. It's not the action itself. It's not just like receiving a tattoo or something like that. It's not just an external action. It's what's meant by the action. That's a killer. Martin Luther, he was so anti-legalism because he was taking on the Catholic Church, right? As a former Augustinian monk, actually he was still a monk who became saved and believed in the free grace of the gospel. And so his life was given to trying to preach clear the free grace of Christ. And he said this, said some people today would bind us to certain, certain of Moses' laws that they like best, like the false apostles wanted to do at the time, but this should not be allowed at all. If, Moses, if we give Moses leave to rule over us in anything, now that sounds pretty strong, right? If we give Moses any part of our lives, we are bound to obey him in everything. Therefore, we must not be burdened with the law of Moses, and we will not let him have dominion over our conscience in any way. In this respect, let him be dead and buried, and let no one know where his grave is. Strong words, but not as strong as Paul. How many of you have either mentored people or known people who really looked like they had it all together spiritually? I have friends who ultimately walk away from the faith. They go to the best Christian school. They are obeying all the laws. They get a polo t-shirt on. I mean, they, they look all cleaned up. Haircut is good to go, whatever. And then as soon as they graduate, it's as if the life support of the externals comes off, right? Comes off the chest and whatever. And then they're just gone. They're just gone. They're just different. It's like, what was it? Well, They were under the message of the saving grace of the gospel, and they were under the influence of what it would look like to be obeying the gospel, and yet there was no internal change in the first place. And so when those externals come off, a person will spiral and sputter. What do you lose? What do you lose when you trust in externals? You lose your freedom and you lose the grace of the gospel. It's the crisis of no advantage to you. There's no power in your life. And then verse 3, you lose your spirit when you trust in legalism. Look at verse 3. 
I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. Paul's saying, I testify. I am a, a martyr's witness is the original um, word. Martyria is there. I, he's saying, I stand in protest against anyone who would do this. Anyone who has learned of Christ and learned of the grace of the gospel, but you're going to now go into legalism. You're going to now blend or mix some sort of external religion in your life. I mean, again, insert any religion of the day into the gospel and you've mixed it and you've messed it up. He says, I testify again, I'm protesting again that you cannot accept circumcision in this situation because if you do, you'll be obligated to keep the whole law. Now here he's using some form of reverse psychology where he's saying, if you take a little bit of the law, then you're obligated to keep all of the law. If you're gonna try to get to God through perfect obedience, you better be perfect all the way through and through. You can't have a piece of the law without having the full weight and convicting guilt of the law on your shoulders. This is where you lose your spirit. If you're trying to law keep, then you are probably a very guilt-ridden person. You're not living the life of 1 John 5 that says if we should keep his commandments, 1 John 5, 3, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. There isn't that yoke on you. The Pharisees were condemned, violently condemned by Christ for their legalism. And they were using externalism and Old Testament law to try to bind people and control people. Anytime someone wants to control you spiritually, watch out. This is that influence that you have to shed and shake off. Uh, And Jesus said, Pharisees, Matthew 23, 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, And they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They're into fakery. Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest, Matthew 11, 28. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. What he's saying is that the gospel yoke of free grace, if that is laid on your shoulders, it's in essence, it's as if Jesus is behind you, and he's saying, I'm going to lift that yoke up, and instead of you having to walk, you just... You just flow freely through the air, trusting God, trusting the gospel. He's got the burden, not you. He took the burden of your guilt. He took the burden of the wrath of God on his shoulders. He took the burden of your sin, and it is gone. It has rolled away, and now you can just walk freely. Is that a gospel that produces holiness? Yes, because your have-to obligations that are in your heart are transformed at this point into a want-to desire to be a Christian. You say, I want to live the Christian life. I want to be soft because I have been saved by grace. But if you're a law keeper, James 2 echoes the same sentiment of Galatians 5.3. James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. If you're trying to earn your salvation and sustain some perfect record, you're going to be a depressed 
person. A lot of times legalists will view the law in terms of a cafeteria and they'll say, I don't have to keep all of it, but I just have to keep these particular laws and then I'm right with God. Now we're going to answer the question next week, how does the Old Testament law work out in the New Testament? Because haven't New Testament writers and authors quoted the Old Testament law for us to obey? Aren't we supposed to delight in the law of the Lord? What does that look like? That's for next week. What I'm trying to do is strip away the idea that you believe you should be under the obligation of the law to keep yourself right with God. Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on works are of a law that are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. All things. It's an all or nothing dimension here. One person put it this way. It's like a motorist who's driving down the road and he deliberately runs a red light. He's pulled over at that point by a police officer and immediately the driver begins to defend himself. He says, officer, look, I know I ran the red light. I know I did that, but I've never robbed anybody. It's not intentionally. I mean, I've never killed anybody, never cheated on my income tax. And the police officer at that point would do what? Smile, look at you and give you a ticket. Because he knows or she knows there's no amount of obedience that can make up for the one act of disobedience. It's one law. It's the same law that protects the obedient person and punishes the offender. And to boast about keeping part of the law while at the same time breaking another part is to confess that you're really worthy of the punishment. Well, you lose things when you're trusting in yourself to save. Number one, you lose your freedom. You lose the grace of the gospel and you lose your spirit. As a believer, you won't lose your salvation, but you'll lose your joy. You'll lose your freedom. You'll lose your witness. But as an unbeliever, you could be duped into believing you're right with God when you're really not. And so you should rightfully lose the assurance of your salvation. Look at verse 4. There isn't more severe language in the New Testament about this. This is hard language, and it's a hard gospel. Paul says, if you accept circumcision at this point with these motivations in this way, if you're rejecting the grace of the gospel, verse 4, you are severed from Christ. Literally, you are cut off and adrift from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. This is a person who is in jeopardy spiritually, in total jeopardy. In terms of their salvation. This kind of verse is. um, It makes you wonder if Paul believed the Galatians were saved in the first place. Now up to this point. He's given at least nine strong affirmations. That he believes the Galatians are Christians. That they are believers. Even Galatians 4.6. He says you are sons. God has sent his spirit. The spirit of his son into our hearts. Crying Abba Father. That's very strong language of affirmation. So what in the world could Paul be saying. That people are actually severed from Christ. That they're cut off from Christ. Well it comes back to what I said before. It means that Paul is addressing two kinds of people. In two different very different spiritual conditions. You have believers who, are, who have cut themselves off from the power of the gospel in their lives. Their air hose is, hose is stepped on because they're trying to keep themselves right with God through externals. Their liberty has been snuffed flat. 
though their position in Christ is safe. But then you have those who actually look and feel like they're fine and they look like everybody else spiritually, but they're really not okay. They're not safe. It's like people who symptomatically look the same and one group has cancer and the other group does not have cancer. No symptoms have shown up to say you have cancer that's terminal yet. And so you look the same, you feel the same, you think that you're fine, you think you've got all the time in the world, and really your condition is terminal. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying there are some of you in the church who are not operating in the sphere of Christ. You think you're okay, but you've lied to yourself through your legalism. A believer is lying to themselves They're they're using legalism as some kind of functional grace. But an unbeliever is duped. And they think they're united with Christ, but they're really not. And they're taking a path that undercuts the only true means of grace, which is through Christ. So Paul is drilling down in severe confrontation here. He's saying, you're trying to be justified or made right with God by the law, and by doing that, you fall in grace. You can't have it both ways. Now, this is a verse where Arminians will say, look, no, these are believers who have then been severed from Christ, and so they are now not believers. They can lose their salvation. But let me also pick on the Reformed tradition for a minute. The Reformed tradition will just say, nope, you know, I believe in the sovereignty of God, so I'm just going to ignore this Bible verse. This Bible verse is superfluous. This Bible verse is a toothless dog to me because I know I'm saved and God did it and I didn't do it. And so this means nothing to me whatsoever. This isn't a real warning. This is just kind of a, a fake warning or an abstract warning. It's not true. These warnings are real. Jesus said, he who continues to the end shall be saved. The the book of Revelation talks about those who overcome are the ones that go to heaven. James chapter 1 verse 12 says that those who finish the race and receive the crown, those are the ones who receive the crown of eternal life. What does this mean? Does this mean you could lose your salvation? Well, let me just rehearse for us a few verses that speak of the security of, of the believer. We know these are true. Romans 8, verse 38, neither life nor death nor angels nor uh, rulers nor things present nor things to come nor height, death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. John 10, 28 I have given them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them from my hand. Ephesians 1.13, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1.4, you have an imperishable inheritance, undefiled and unfading, kept for you. 1 John 5.13, these things I've written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. So the confidence and the security of the believer is not in jeopardy with a verse like this. So what does this mean? This is talking in terms of a believer's perseverance. And I want you to begin to think about this doctrine because I believe in the security of the believer that once you are saved, you are always saved because God is the one who saves you. If I saved myself, I would have messed it up a long time ago. God saved me, and so that's why I'm saved. But as a believer, I will persevere if I am truly saved. A saved person is a marathon runner. 
Yes, they'll stumble. Yes, they'll fall. Yes, they'll become sidelined for a while. You can be a believer whose air hose has stepped on. We've talked about that. But ultimately, a believer will hear warnings from Scripture like these and wake up. And warnings like these are like the defibrillator paddles that are on the heart that shock you awake where you say, oh, you know what? I was veering off the path, and I don't want to be that person. It's like the person says, I'm a believer. I'm not going to take the mark of the beast. I'm a believer. I'm not going to use circumcision as a means of grace in my life to save me. There's no way. I'm throwing that off. That's a warning because that's not who I am. Warnings in Scripture are like bumper rails that just keep us on the narrow path to perseverance. And they shouldn't be just thrown off. Look at 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Those who are not the real thing, they'll ignore the warnings in Scripture. They'll blow them off. They'll blow them off. They'll rationalize them. They'll say, that's not for me. He who continues the end shall be saved. I don't care. People who don't care about their spiritual condition, those are the people who really don't have the assurance of their salvation. Do you understand? People who are concerned about the assurance of their salvation typically have the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in their life where they're going, okay, I'm willing to examine myself to see if I am in Christ. I'm willing to check myself out spiritually to see if I'm okay. Hebrews 6, it talks about people who are enlightened, people who have tasted the heavenly gift of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God, the powers of the age to come. But then after, after all of that exposure to the light, if they've fallen away to restore them again to repentance, um, it can't happen because they've crucified once again the Son of God to their own harm and their own contempt. What does that mean? It's the idea that if you've been exposed to so much gospel light and you reject it and you harden your heart and you say, you know, I've been around the power of God, but I don't want it anymore, that even in this life, there are points where God will give you over to your own sin and the own hardness of your own heart, and you will be at a place where you cannot be saved anymore. That's Hebrews 6. This is the warning of a burning building. That's what this passage is. You could be severed from Christ. You could, have, you could fall away from grace. You could be so exposed to the grace of the gospel that it becomes blasé to you. You don't care about it anymore. You, you just are going to just try to earn your righteousness. You're going to go to church enough to try to get to heaven. You're going to go to Sunday school enough to try to get to heaven. You're going to keep your kids in school or Christian school enough to try to get your way to heaven. You're going to do whatever it takes to make yourself feel like you're okay with God. And really, your own spiritual house is on fire. Spurgeon sarcastically said, these warnings are like that. He says, now when I believe that a man tells me that my house is on fire or a truth like this, then I could say, well, this is a good piece of my creed now. I'll write that down. I'll put it on the shelf. He says, a man tells me, for instance, in the middle of the night that my house is on fire. You know what I would do. You know what you would do. But when you are told in God's word that you're in danger of the wrath to come, do you believe what you read? No, you do not. Or you would do something and not be so at ease with what you have just heard. 
Where are you spiritually? You who've come this Sunday morning to sit under the hearing of God's word with a warning where you could be severed from Christ, where are you spiritually? Are you right with God? Has the grace of the gospel so freed you that you are flying by the Spirit's power? Or are you suffocating your own spiritual life by trusting in your own deeds to save you? Where are you before God?